pleased to have so many visitors here today, and everybody, if you get a chance, uh, right after service, go shake their hands and get to know them, and uh, we are sad, of course, by all the health problems people are having. Let's keep uh, Margaret and Sandra and others uh, in our prayers. We also want to be mindful, of course, that it is Memorial Day weekend, uh, a time when we stop and pause our lives and thank those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice uh, so that we can have our freedoms uh, and we are, are thankful for their service uh, and their sacrifice. I really love Bible study. Sometimes I'll get involved in a Bible study. I'll start to, to study on a topic that, you know, has caught my interest, and I lose all track of time. I'll try not to do that this morning, but uh, I will do my best to, to stay within our time limits uh, this morning. But I think it is important that we study the Bible with our children, uh, with our grandchildren. I, I think it's important that each of us study the Bible, learning the Bible stories, certainly, but learning facts about the Bible, the layout and structure of the Bible, foundational information about the doctrines and what God has taught us in His Word. I think that's really important to, to lay down that foundation for our children and grandchildren because uh, even if they become rebellious, even if they turn away from God in their lives, at some point things are not working out the way they thought they would and they're going to have that foundation and that truth to come back to and to understand. Uh, it's something that many of us uh, who who have had children that have been rebellious or whatever are hoping that we've laid that foundation for them. Uh, and it's it may be something that you've experienced even in your own life if you were away uh, in the far country and have come back to that foundation. I was looking at Psalm uh, 119. The longest chapter in the Bible, right? 176 verses. All but four of them, 172 verses, talk about God's Word. Glorifying God's Word, God's ordinances, God's law, uh, God's commandments. It's talking about God's statutes and the way that He communicated to us through His Word. It's a, it's a beautiful chapter in the Psalms. It's a long chapter, but it's all about glorifying God and His communication with us through His Word. And there are so many different ways that we can study the Bible. Uh, I really want to impress this morning on you the idea that, you know, the Bible study never has to be boring. There's always a way to approach it in a different way. Uh, and there are many different types of studies that you can do. Certainly we can do things like book studies where we can take like the book of Romans work our way through that verse by verse, looking at uh, concordances and commentaries and all of that to, to cross-reference it and, and to really get an in-depth study. There's historical studies, contextual studies. There's You can study the covenants. You can study the dispensations. You can look at an expository study, that is, take a, a single verse or a collection of verses and really dig into that passage for its full meaning, try to try to see all the different layers to it. We can do character and biographical studies, 
word studies of just taking a word like faith and looking through it and how faith is treated throughout the Bible. We can study numbers and symbology of the Bible. We can do a topical study and on and on. There are a lot of different ways. And this morning what I thought I would do is do something a little bit different. I want to look at famous chapter twos in the Bible. Uh, I was I was studying Acts chapter 2, and it just occurred to me that there are a lot of famous chapter 2s in the Bible. Now, certainly all of the Bible uh, is worthy of study, but today we're just going to look at different chapter 2s. Uh, it's going to not necessarily all correspond together. We're just going to look at some famous chapter 2s. With Acts chapter 2, of course, you've got the birth of the church. We've got others that are really good for memory cards and and memorizing. We think of it as memory for our our children, but it's really good for us to get some things to hang our our knowledge on, right? So like Exodus chapter 2, for instance, is the birth of Moses. Luke chapter 2, birth of Jesus. Acts 2, the birth of the church. I want to take a look at some famous chapter 2s, and I want to start with the very first chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2, we have the birth of man and mankind. And in 2.7, man becomes a living soul. It's the very beginning of our being. And certainly that's a vitally important piece of information about how God created man. But I want to look at a specific thing from Acts chapter or Genesis chapter 2. I want to look at the beginning of God defining what marriage is and the marriage relationship. It's something that's vitally important for us today. In our world, people have become very confused about this, and it seems to be, to me, a simple thing. It's something that's it's vitally important for us. And in Genesis 2 and verse 24, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God defines marriage as between a man and a woman. It's one man, one woman for life, and they're leaving even before there was a father and mother. God is saying a man and a woman are going to leave their father and mother and join as one flesh. But this has become confused in our world with people trying to redefine marriage. In 2001, the Netherlands was the first country uh, to grant same-sex marriage, uh, homosexual marriage. And they did that on April 1st, which I think is uh, appropriate, on April Fool's Day. Uh, Belgium did it in 2003, Spain and and Canada in 2005, South Africa in 2006. In 2009, Norway and Sweden, 2010, Portugal, Iceland, Argentina. In 2012, Denmark. In 2013, Brazil, France, Uruguay, and New Zealand. In 2014, England, Wales, and Scotland. In 2015, it was Luxembourg and Ireland with a vote of 62% of the populace. And unfortunately, the great beacon of light for the world, the United States of America's Supreme Court, redefined marriage. I was asked by someone about, they were a notary at a bank, and they were concerned because they did not want to have to notarize same-sex marriage documents. Uh, The bank fortunately changed their policy and says that they won't notarize any documents having to do with marriage uh, now because of the, the change in the law. Now, I don't care 
how popular this is. I don't care if the Supreme Court uh, thinks that it can redefine marriage or voters of Ireland or voters of the United States. God ruled on what constitutes marriage all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. And at the back, at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, after creating man and woman, creating that relationship, God defined marriage. And we cannot redefine what God has defined. It doesn't matter what authority on earth changes it, it is still between a man and a woman. Switching to Nehemiah 2, I told you it's a little bit disjointed when you jump around to famous chapter 2s, but Nehemiah 2 is certainly a change. But what we're seeing here is people have been, the, the people of God, the Israelites, have been put into captivity. Uh, it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes. So he is a servant to the king, and he is serving the king, and the king notices that he is upset. But he's sad. He says, why shouldn't I be sad? Because the my home, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. His, his homeland is in ruins because they were carried off into captivity and Jerusalem had been captured. So Nehemiah takes this opportunity to impress upon the king that his desire to go back to Israel and to rebuild. It's, it's a turning point in Nehemiah chapter 2 for the nation of Israel. And it's going to put them back in the promised land. It's going to put them back where Jesus will be born there in Bethlehem. And he will live his entire life in that area. So Nehemiah chapter 2 is a big turning point for the Jewish nation coming out of captivity yet again, just like they did out of Egyptian captivity. We take a look at Psalm chapter 2. And a lot of these following chapter 2s are interesting because of their prophecy. So Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This statement is made about a thousand years before Christ, before Jesus is born. In Hebrews 1, chapter 5, it's quoted to show Christ's superiority over the angels. In uh, Hebrews 1, verse 5 reads, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Quoting Psalm chapter 2. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. It's talking about how Jesus is better, is superior to angels. Now, that's an important fact that comes about in in Psalm chapter 2 and and brought out in Hebrews. Why is it necessary to show that Christ is superior to angels? Well, besides being a quick answer to our Jehovah's Witness friends who believe that Jesus is an angel, uh, I believe what the Hebrew writer had in mind was more along the lines of this. Hebrews is all about the better covenant that we have in the New Testament. How we have a better high priest in Jesus than the sons of Aaron. How everything is better in the New Testament than it was under the old. And Galatians 3.19 makes a reference that's pretty easy for us to overlook. We don't live under the old law. We don't think about it uh, in these terms it talks about the old law being 
delivered or ordained by angels. It says, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed, or King James has ordained, through angels by the hand of a mediator. The law was delivered to a mediator by angels. I think that's an important point. And the mediator was was Moses, right? Acts 7, as Stephen is giving his defense, he talks about it being delivered by angels. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? They have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom have been now the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. The point that Hebrews is making here is that the old law was delivered by angels to a mediator, Moses. The new law of love and liberty under Christ is superior because it is not delivered by angels. It is not handled by a separate mediator. It is given by Christ, who is greater than the angels and is our mediator. And I think that's the point that's being made there. We look at Isaiah chapter 2, and verses 2 and 3, and we start to get a sense of, of why Jesus came. In Isaiah chapter 2, in verses 2 and 3, it says, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the Lord, of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So we get this sense that in the last days, in the Lord's house, the symbology that's being used, what is the house of God? We'll turn to 1 Timothy 3.15. I love it when the Bible defines its own terms. It does so quite often, <clears throat> and it does so here in 1 Timothy three, fifteen. It reads, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God. So there's that term, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Isaiah chapter 2 is this beautiful prophecy pointing towards the church. And all sorts of things are in that prophecy that came about in Acts chapter 2. Where it would begin and who would be subject to it. It would begin in Jerusalem and all nations would stream into it. Everyone is going to be subject to it. Another famous chapter 2 is Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel 2, he makes some amazing prophecies. He predicts the rise and fall of great empires. And in Daniel 2.44, he predicts the kingdom of Christ being set up during the Roman Empire. Now this was hundreds of years before Christ, before the Roman Empire. 
In fact, one of the criticisms that used to be launched at the Bible was that we didn't have any early documents showing Daniel chapter 2 before Christ. So they said it was a later edition because no one could have made these predictions, which obviously are speaking about these kingdoms that didn't exist yet, unless it was really from God. And people reject that concept. They don't want to believe that the Bible's from God. But then we got the Dead Sea Scrolls. We found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which happened to have a 2nd century B.C., 200 years before Jesus, copy of Daniel 2. And guess what? It reads exactly like our copy of Daniel 2. You can't read the prophetic statements in Daniel 2 knowing that they were written hundreds of years before Christ, before the kingdom that he set up in the church, without being profoundly impressed that the hand of God wrote these words. And then we also look at another one, Joel 2, another famous chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Which reads, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Peter cites this on the day of Pentecost at the founding of the church in Acts chapter 2 in verse 16. He's talking about it. He says, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And that leads us right into Acts chapter 2, which we're going to look at a couple of times towards the end of the lesson here. But I do want to look at Acts chapter 2, where he says, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. There was a book that was written several years ago called The Hub of the Bible, and it's about Acts chapter 2. And the reason... They called it the hub of the Bible is because all of the Bible turns around Acts chapter 2. It is the absolute center of the message. Everything before it is pointing towards it. Everything after it is pointing back to it because Acts chapter 2 is the establishment of the church. The establishment of the kingdom that God set up putting Christ on the throne. It was predicted in Joel, in Isaiah, in Psalms, many other places. It was fulfilled. The church is not some afterthought from God where, oops, he made a mistake, he sent the Messiah and he was rejected. I guess I'll form the church. That was not the idea. The idea was created before the foundation of the world. It was set up knowing that we would fall, knowing that we would sin, and knowing that God needed a way for us to become back with him, to be reconciled with him. And he formed in his mind the concept of the church, and everything pointed towards that, and Jesus' mission was to fulfill that, to seek and save the lost, the death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel, and then to set up the church, the vehicle by which we can be reunited with God. So Acts chapter 2 is where all of that takes place, and it's just absolutely beautiful. In fact, I've heard it described as a greasy chapter. 
what they mean by that is, in the church, we love to turn to Acts chapter 2. And so if you turn to Acts chapter 2 in our Bibles that we use all the time, it's going to be kind of a greasy page, right? Because we, we turn to it all of the time. So sometimes they accuse us of overusing it. But it's, uh, it's a very powerful chapter. It's hard to argue with Acts chapter 2. But before time expires uh, this morning, I want to look at a couple of others. Briefly speaking about Romans uh, chapter 2. Now, Peter talks in 2 Peter 3, which I I shouldn't use 2 Peter 3 since it's not a chapter 2, but he's talking about Paul writing some things that are hard to understand. And I kind of feel like Peter had just read a copy of Romans when he wrote those words. Uh, There are some things in Romans, and I've studied Romans multiple times, I've taught it multiple times. There are some things in Romans that are difficult to understand, that take some serious thought and reflection and study to really understand what Paul is talking about. But all of Romans is not like that. Romans 6, for instance, is a beautiful defense of baptism. In fact, I don't know how anyone can read Romans 6, 1 through 6, and not understand baptism and and the symbology that, that God put in that with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a beautiful passage that can't be argued against, in my opinion. And Romans 2 is a similar passage. It is not hard to understand Romans 2. I have kind of an outline on the screen, but Romans 2 is talking about the judgment. The coming judgment of God, the final judgment, and how that will be, what's going to take place. In 2, in verse 2, he says, it will be according to truth. We're going to be judged according to truth. In verse 5, he says that it will be a righteous judgment of God, something that should really strike fear into all of our hearts, because if it's according to truth, that means we're going to be judged on sin, and it's going to be righteous, which means if we have sin, we're going to be found guilty. In verse 6, it said, well, every man will be according to his deeds. So we're not going to be judged on what our parents did or what our husbands or wives did or what anyone else did. We're going to be responsible for what we have done. In verse 11, he makes it clear that God is no respecter of persons. So you're not going to be able to obtain a high enough office on earth where God's going to be impressed. He's not going to be impressed with me. Because I'm up here preaching, he's not going to be impressed with the president or or anybody. He is no respecter of persons. Everyone will be standing there and everyone will be responsible for what they did. And the rule that he's going to be judged against is in 16. He'll judge the secrets of men according to my gospel. So we're going to be judged on what we have done, even the secret things, even things we've been able to hide from other people. They're going to be made known, and we're going to need Jesus on our side at that time. So here we have another great chapter 2 that teaches us about the coming judgment, something that we should all be concerned about. There are several other chapter 2s, and I won't go into great detail with these, but I'll just hit a few highlights. First, 
1 Corinthians 2 and verse 13, we see the inspiration of Scripture defended. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Ephesians chapter 2, we see those living in and out of Christ. And without God, we have no hope. And without Christ, we have no hope. We learned that also in Romans chapter 2. We're going to be judged. We're going to need Jesus on our side. Philippians chapter 2 talks about it, our life and how we're to live the same as Christ Jesus. It says, let this mind be in you that is in Christ Jesus, right? That he was obedient even unto death, even the death of the cross, so shouldn't we be obedient to God. Colossians chapter 2 talks about blotting out the handwriting of ordinances against us on the cross. This idea, and I, I really believe a lot of people are confused about the Old and New Testament. Uh, and the idea here is God created the New Testament because we were not able to live up to the Old Testament. We were not able to live under the Old Testament in a sinless way. And once you sin, there's no way for reconciliation, right? You have these sacrifices of, of bulls and goats, but the, they were not able to take away our sin. There was nothing that could do that until Christ, who fulfilled the law, lived the perfect life, and then sacrificed himself willingly for us. He could have stopped it at any time. And in doing so, he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances against us. The fact that we are going to sin and that we could not live up to that standard, but we can still be reconciled with God through Jesus. 1 Timothy 2 talks about the role of men and women in worship. But by way of invitation, I want to go back to Isaiah 2, Joel 2, and Acts chapter 2. We see through the ages God's beautiful plan. It culminates, as we talked about in Acts chapter 2, with the establishment of the church. It's also called the house of God. It's also called the kingdom. And Jesus today is on his throne, reigning over that kingdom. And it's a kingdom that will never end. In Acts chapter 2, it talks about that, and it talks about the fact that we want to be a part of that kingdom that will never end. You know, you look at the Apostle Paul, right? Throughout the New Testament, he had certain rights because he was a Roman citizen. So sometimes they trampled on those rights. They beat him without a trial. That was right of a Roman citizen. You couldn't beat them without a trial, he was allowed to appeal unto Caesar. So when he was going to get an unfavorable judgment and be turned over to people who were going to kill him, he said, I appeal to Caesar as my right as a Roman citizen. If he was found guilty by Caesar and sentenced to death, he would not be sentenced to the death of the cross, a long and painful death. Instead, he would be sentenced to the death of beheading. Now, we might not think that's a great right. You, you have the right to be killed by beheading instead of being killed by the cross, but it was a right of a Roman citizen. Today, 
We have much better rights than that. And I'm not talking about the rights under the United States that are in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Those are certainly those are certainly great documents that establish wonderful rights for us, freedom of speech, speech freedom of religion, etc. But I'm talking about the rights that we have in the kingdom of Christ. We have better rights than they did under the Rome, Roman era. We have better rights than we have as American citizens. Because we have right to eternal life with God because we belong to Christ. Because we've been freed by Christ. And to get into Christ, we do the same thing that they talked about in Acts chapter 2. We quote it all the time. It's Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. When they ask him, what must we do to be saved? What are we going to do? We've been found guilty. We're convicted of sin. What are we going to do about it? And Peter says unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We do the same thing now to get into the kingdom, to get into Christ, that they did in Acts chapter 2. We're baptized into Christ. And all spiritual blessings, all of our rights in the kingdom are found in Christ. So this morning, I just want to ask you if you are in Christ. If you're not, we would love to study with you and talk to you about that more. If there are any questions that you have or anything that you don't understand, we would love to study with you about that. If you have fallen away, you are no longer in Christ. You've been in Christ before, but you have left the faith. You have fallen into sin. We would love to, to make that right, help, help you make that right with the Lord through confession, repentance, and prayer. If either one of those is the case for you, don't go away from here lost. Be part of the kingdom of Christ and come forward as we stand and as we sing.